Welcome to Miked Up with Chiral Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Field. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. All right, welcome to our next episode of Miked Up with Cairo Up. It's Tim and Brandon with the first episode of 2024. This is going to be a great year for the profession. I just have a feeling. Yeah, why? Um, I, I just have this feeling that we've been working on for two years, that there's going to be some new products that come out with a, a very simple aim. is to keep the data within our profession and making it easier for all of us to practice selfishly, I mean, in all honesty, selfishly, this is going to be a fun year. Um, however, we get to spread the love a little bit with these uh, Cairo products. They're going to come out pretty pretty soon here. Um, however, I guess we have to talk about the podcast first. First, what is happening in practice, Dr. Bertelsman? Yeah, it's the start of the year. So everybody starts to count their pennies and determine what do I need to do this year? We all make resolutions that we're going to uh, have a perfect diet and a perfect workout plan and spend plenty of time with everybody that we want to. And one of those things that we make a resolution for is to make our practice more efficient. So we look at costs. What are we going to do? And I think a couple of things come to mind. Number one, we do want to look for what do we do to drop the fluff from our practice? What are the things that really are not producing revenue? The other thing that we need to, to think about this time of year when we most of us are pinching pennies, it's the end of the year, our taxes are probably a little bit higher, our Christmas expenses are coming in, and we have new copays and deductibles, so the practice stats are off a little bit. Yeah, we're all looking to how can we save a dollar. And I think one thing that I've learned through the years is sometimes saving a dollar actually makes you lose more dollars. That This is really our spring for planting seeds. If, if we're farmers, now's the time to buy seeds and buy fertilizer. And the more seeds and fertilizer that we can buy, the things that we can do to build our practice, the better the harvest is going to be as that year goes on. So be cautious with the things that you're looking at and really take a look at each one and say, is this fluff? Can it go? Or is this something that I really do need at this point in time, whether that be staff or resources or treatment tables, whatever it is that you need to improve your capacity, improve your outcomes, and ultimately that improves your, your incomes. The other thing is looking at what's your daily routine, that now's the, the time to kind of refocus. That there are so many things that I find myself doing in practice that I realize I really don't need to do this. So saying, what can I automate? What can I eliminate? What can I delegate? And some of those things for elimination means looking at what's your daily routine that, that I have a flow. In fact, it's pasted to my phone right here that I've reminded myself for the past however many 10 years I've been in practice that I'll start with. I'll oh, start hold on, with, hold on. How many years have you been in practice? It's 30. It's a long time. Uh, I've been, you've been in practice here over 10 years now, right? Yeah, and I'm, I'm only 24 the math gets fuzzy if you really get down to it, but um, yeah. So it's been a good, good twenty years in practice, and then something happened. But the the routine that I uh, that I go through is saying, what's my prioritized daily task list? And obviously, number one, seeing the patient and providing care. Uh, right after that, number two, if I don't have a patient to see, I'm going to make sure that note is fully complete and signed. Number three, I'm going to go and say, are there any charts or studies or reports or patient-related items that I need to get rid of? Basically, is there anything on my desk or on my computer desktop related to a patient? 
And then if I finished all those three tasks, then mark it. And I find that if I stick with that patient notes, do their, see the patient, do their notes, do the charts, and then mark it, I always tend to not get around to marketing because the practice stays busy. And then looking about what, what can you delegate? Are there tasks in that process that maybe somebody else in your office could do? Because you are the person in the office that really is the block of time. That if things are slowing down and your capacity is not realized, usually it's the doctor who's trying to do too much. And then with regard to automation, uh, we do have a new tool that we've been using now for about a year, and that's the Chief Complaint Survey. It was released earlier this month. It automates your intake process, so when the patient comes into your treatment room, you see their OPPQRST with diagrams and an intuitive uh, question pattern and answers that really expedites that visit. So I think that's one of the, th the biggest things that's happened in practice to really speed things up for me. You know, one of the interesting things that we have, both at Premier Rehab, our private practice, and also Kyra, is we have this person who looks at our profit loss statement. Uh, it just happens to be me. And one thing that, and one, I am not a, a CFO. We have, we have much smarter people that can help manage that. But we look at trends and we look at, you know, what money's going out, what money's coming back in. I, I can decipher that. And one thing that truly makes me somewhat upset is when I look at the Premier Rehab profit loss, because the one thing that's not in there as far as the expenses is our time. And that is one of the most unfortunate things that when I talk with most chiropractors, they're looking to decrease their expenses, but they forget about the time component with that. That if you're truly you know, involved in your practice and doing everything and not automating things, not delegating things, that means it's your time as an expense on that profit loss statement. That's a big deal. That if you don't feel like you're in control of your practice, if you don't feel like you're in control of your profession, and sometimes, I mean, very often we can feel not in control of our life is because we're spending too much time on the things that probably someone else could do. Uh, so think about those things. You know, when you're making those decisions on your profit loss statement, is that what are you really trading? Is it just money or is it also your time? Where'd you steal that quote from? That was kind of that was kind of nice. I just I, these things just come to my head, you know. And, and you know what? In all actuality, I probably did blend that one and make that one up as I went. However, let me give a book recommendation. This is going a little off script. Uh, Tools for Titans, uh, Tim Ferriss book. Uh, his second book was Tribe Tri Tri of Mentors. Both are ginormous. That's not a word. Um, however, uh, very big books. However, they're broken down into what? Like little three-page, five-page summaries on um, lessons from people much smarter than uh, Tim. Uh, pretty much even <laughs> level with me. Uh, uh, no, let's, let's dive into the random so, facts. <laughs> so it's a picture book. <laughs> it's a comic book. Uh, random facts of the day. Let's just give two. Uh, the first one is... Um, I, I do think is interesting is that I am on the uh, the fan club for Dr. Michaud. Dr. Tom Michaud is if you ever heard him speak, uh, you'll just it's like a fire hose of information that you just try to grasp as many things as possible. But I thought of him when I was reading this this research article. But it was <laughs> did you read the author? Yes. Thong Ons. Um, I'm not making fun of the name, but it is funny. His last name is Thong. You're going to want to Google that. Uh, scientific Reports, 2023. But he talks about medial wedge insoles. And this is something that's interesting. Instead of giving someone orthotic, an arch support, uh, or, or, say, or even better, sending them to the, uh, with the, the foot store, the, the um, whatever. Let's, let's not use names. Yeah, well, good. I probably butchered it anyway. The place where they get these custom orthotics that just happen to come from the back office um, and cost $500. Um, however, this is a, a great little um, tidbit of information that 
you can use medial wedges. And this is essentially a wedge in the bottom of the, the, the shoe that you just paste on to the shoe um, insert and it produces less knee motion in the transverse plane. Of course, in this case, going into valgosity. And instead of using arch supports, which, which have their place also, I'm not saying anything bad about that. However, this is something easy for the patient to put on their shoe and uh, it will slow down the rate of pronation. Um, and also they're at a decreased cost. So it's something that instead of customized insoles, you can actually use these medial wedges. Uh, we get ours from humanlocomotion.com. Uh, we're not a paid spokesperson. It's just something we use in our practice. Yeah, it definitely works. Uh, something else that works is the blog that you wrote on slap lesions, number two performing blog of all time. So if you haven't checked that out, take a look. There's uh, some new research. In case you're not familiar with slap lesions, that just means basically that the labrum, the little lip of cartilage around the, the shoulder, is starting to pull away from the bone. Uh, so a superior labrum anterior to posterior is what it stands for. And remember the biceps tendon, the long head of the biceps, comes through that bicipital groove and goes up and half of its fibers insert onto the labrum. So most of the time, slap lesions are related to the biceps, that the biceps pulls on it, and just like one of the old pop-top cans, it kind of peels that pop-top back. Um, there was a study that came out that said, what are the best tests to identify a slap lesion? And O'Brien's test and crank test, that combination is the most sensitive. And then Jurgensen's and anterior slide tests are the most specific. You can review any of those tests uh, in Cairo up, just go to the clinical skills tab and take a look. But, but those are the tests that can really tell us what's going on. And now uh, this is an opinion. I'm, I'm going to go against the study, um, and that's okay. Um, I don't like O'Brien's test as much. I actually like the biceps low test, and there's plenty of research. Uh, sorry, biceps low test too. Um, however, I was very surprised on this test. Is that Jurgensen and anterior slide? Uh, their specificity, um, and, and specificity is the ability to designate an individual who does not have a disease. Uh, so can we say this person who does not have disease is negative? This is one of those things that these true negatives are actually tough to find in the shoulder, if you ask me, because so many things are positive that just picking up their arm in someone who has a, um, a shoulder problem uh, is often positive. So um, I, I do think these have their place. Jurgensen uh, so Jurgensen's test is when they're trying to resist that supination and you're looking to really stress that uh, that biceps tendon, uh, looking for the transverse humor ligament, but also looking for that, that slap lesion. Yeah, and then certainly, um, as you talked about, the uh, the biceps load test, a great test. And I remember hearing it explained, just hold your arm up like you're asking a question, and then the, the practitioner asks the patient to arm wrestle. So all of these tests kind of have a similar process. They're engaging the biceps muscle to have it pull on that labrum and see, does that cause pain? Does it cause popping, clunking? Like any orthopedic test, we look at every test doing one of three things. Either identify the tissue and make it push on it, pull on it, or make it work. And in this case, we're doing a little bit of pulling on it and making it work. So every test uses those. Rather than remembering the names, just remember those three things and then try to make the tissue do one of those three things. I was down in Tennessee and someone talking about orthopedic testing and how important it was. And of course, I think it's important. I mean, we're both different in orthopedics and I uh, really enjoy trying to find, you know, what's causing someone's pain is, you know, it's part of what we do. And he had a very interesting concept. He's like, yeah, I think that's important uh, to understand what's wrong with them. 
but, and when he said, but I was like, there is no, but like, that's the purpose of it. And he said, no, it just tells the patient that I know where you know his or her problem is. And I've never really thought about it that way is that orthopedic testing gives us information, but also when you think about it, it gives the patient information that I know what they're talking about. I can reproduce their pain. So just something to think about. Yeah. And, and also highlights the fact that we should probably always go to the source of pain that we as chiropractors will start our exam and we have this sophisticated exam. If we can go right to that pain to start with, it lets the patient know right off the bat, we probably know what they're dealing with and, and can help them. Yeah. And so many times you'll go to a seminar and they'll, they'll be, well, I'm not pain focused. That's fine. You're function focused. I'm fine with that. There's, we don't have to chase pain. I get that. However, we can't be blind to the fact that most people come to see us for pain. Um, so, and I'm not saying that once they're out of pain, they, they don't need to see us anymore. There's plenty of ways to practice. However, let's be honest, for most of us, they're coming in for that, for that reason. Let's, let's go ahead and chase it down and find it. Um, however, we have, we, I mean, we've gone, what, 12 minutes now and haven't even gotten to the purpose of this podcast. This, this podcast actually was, um, um, I, I guess, came from uh, my conversation with a pain management doctor that um, had a, a family member that had thoracic spine pain that uh, was not seeing a chiropractor, but was uh, seeing a, a bunch of different providers, massage therapy and uh, different kinds of providers uh, for this thoracic spine pain that wasn't going away. And it t- ended up being a little more sinister. And um, I had a patient that came in to see me with a very similar case. And I was just kind of, you know, temporarily thinking about that, that, that patient who wasn't getting better. And so I dug into the research a little bit within Cairo up and I, I saw this quote. And that is manipulation of the thoracic facet and cost of vertebral joints is often met with temporary relief only and should tip the practitioner to a different primary cause of intrathoracic pain. Now, that, that's the quote. That is what it is. There are a lot of patients that go through manipulation of the thoracic uh, facets or cost of vertebral joints and they get long lasting relief. That's great. So not saying that's the case. We do have those patients with cost of vertebral dysfunction and we are going to cover that in this, uh, this, uh, this podcast. I think it's important for us to hear the research behind it. However, we also have to understand that when we're treating something and we keep on treating something and we're not getting the result that we expect, let's look for something else. It doesn't mean the thoracic spine, doesn't mean the foot. It could be anything, but there should always be that little person on your shoulder saying, what else could this be? Could it be a facet joint in the mid thoracic spine? Absolutely. Top cause. We see it all the time. However, could it be something else? So today's lecture is going to go through one lesser known to providers diagnosis and one very common diagnosis to providers. So the first one being dorsal scapular neuropathy. Uh, Dr. B, can you say that five times fast? Uh, I've never heard of that. So I'm, I'm interested to learn about it. I, I know that uh, in, in practice, um, when I started in practice, if somebody had pain in the intrascapular area, I would look at the ribs and the intrascapular muscles and address that and found out that you got results sometimes. And then fairly quickly learned that a lot of times the cervical spine is the culprit. Uh, and once I started addressing the cervical spine more consistently, I saw the results in, improve dramatically. In fact, Maine, so this is the doctor identified Maine syndrome. 
which causes, it's basically a radiculopathy of the thoracolumbar junction that causes pain to radiate over the hip. Again, uh, there's a webinar on that, a podcast on that, a blog on that. Uh, and they're pretty popular too. That's a, that's something that intrigues a lot of people. But Ma- Dr. Main said that 70% of dorsal scapular pain originates from the lower cervical spine. So that improves our outcomes dramatically. We're not just getting rid of those local problems. We're addressing the cervical. But that means there's a good chunk of that dorsal scapular pain that doesn't arise from the cervical spine. And these are our patients who have intrascapular achiness and cramping, just this deep-seated painful tension in their scapular area. We're going to look at dorsal scapular neuropathy, which is basically a main-like syndrome or a sciatica-like syndrome, but it originates in the lower cervical spine and causes a referral of discomfort to the intrascapular area. So as far as this problem, it's uh, mostly associated with C5. Now, things get a touch messy when you get up in that brachial plexus area, but the dorsal scapular nerve is a branch of the brachial plexus primarily arising from the ventral ramus of C5. Um, I had to write that down. I don't remember those things, um, but the really... The, C5. C5. Uh, it's a letter and a number. Um, uh, the, this is a motor nerve. It's going from the C5, so it's going to go and drive right through that medial scalene. It's going to go right along the levator scapula, and it's going to stop at the rhomboid. What that means is that its motor function is the rhomboid. So we're going to be able to test that, especially when our chronic cases, uh, we're going to see some uh, issues and strength with the rhomboids. Now, injury, compression, prolonged stretch of this nerve, just like any other uh, peripheral neuropathy, is going to cause a problem for whatever that nerve controls. In this case, the rhomboids, we're going to have inability to retract, elevate, or stabilize the scapula. Yeah, so how do we recognize it? Well, the same way that we recognize most any other neuropathy, there's two things we want to do, either push on it or pull on it. And the big one for a neuropathy is just poke on it. So as we palpate along that middle scalene down over the levator and down into the rhomboid muscles, is there sensitivity and tenderness? And is it a neurologic type tenderness where it's kind of a vague numbness along that medial scapular border? Uh, A lot of times this patient will have a pinpoint of pain. And that pinpoint of pain is is just lateral to the T5-6 spinous process. So as we go off the spine just a little bit at T5-6, does that hurt? Now that's also a common area that we're going to see trigger points in the rhomboid and costovertebral joint dysfunction. So a lot of times these are multifaceted problems. One thing that we can identify in these patients is a loss of cervical rotation, especially ipsilateral rotation. So if we move them into rotation or a maximum foraminal compression, sometimes that can reproduce that discomfort. And we also can see that there's an irritation if the patient provokes that position at night. So if you're sleeping in a maximum foraminal compression uh, position where you have rotation and lateral flexion toward that affected side, it wouldn't be surprising to have that discomfort. Sometimes if that nerve is really irritated, now think carpal tunnel. First we get sensory disturbances and later motor. The same thing with this neuropathy. First we get sensory disturbances with that numbness, tingling, and discomfort on the medial scapular border and then weakness. And the muscles that the dorsal scapular nerve supply are the rhomboids, which leads to winging of the scapula. So acute presentation, maybe we have some discomfort in chronic presentations. Now we get some winging of the the scapula. You know what, this brings up a good point, that there aren't a lot of neuropathies that are purely sensory, and this is not one of them, that there's definitely a motor component. But can you name any peripheral neuropathies that are only sensory and not motor? 
And at my uh, challenge, uh, and this is a challenge on the fly, is to drop back and forth. Can you name one that is probably purely sensory? <laughs> I was hoping you were going to ask me. I was like trying to think about it in my head. Um, purely sensory, um, lateral femur cutaneous. Uh, so uh, moralgia uh, parasthetica. Moralgia parasthetica. I would agree. Um, it's not for you I to can't agree. confirm. <laughs> But I would, I would think the same. Uh, I think probably the most common one we would see would be a greater occipital uh, neuropathy to where we have a cervicogenic type headache that's arising from the greater occipital nerve. Uh, I'm glad does you're... It, does it have a motor function? Does the greater occipital nerve have a motor function? I don't function? think it does. I could ask the Google no, box, but I don't want to make sounds. Um, uh, Parasthetica. Uh, uh, Tralgia. Uh, so uh, Wartenberg. Wartenberg's, oh, Wartenberg syndrome. So uh, that's a superficial radial nerve uh, irritation. Yep. So pain in the lateral wrist and thumb. Uh, I'm going to shift gears since I'm pretty much out of purely no, no, sensory no, keep neuropathies. Going. <laughs> that uh, one that is not that we used to think was, was the medial branch of the dorsal root. Now this isn't on the surface, but remember that medial branch of the dorsal root of the lumbar spine is what innervates the facet joint. And for many years, we thought that that facet uh, was purely mm -hmm. sensory and that if you just burnt that, so a radiofrequency ablation of that dorsal root, a, a, a neurotomy, um, that it purely just caused a sensory disturbance. And the, the newer research says it's not purely sensory, that those, those nerves actually supply some innervation to the deep spinal stabilizers like the multifidus. Well, that's a problem if you don't have deep spinal stabilizers that are working at full capacity and not surprising that when you cut that nerve or burn that nerve, that patient is going to have accelerated degeneration. So fortunately, most of us have a tool that we can manage that problem without burning the nerve uh, before that being a last resort. So what you're telling me is my next answer is probably not right. <laughs> so so notalgia? Because that would also be dorsal root, right? That, that would be. That's a good so, one. Well, I'm saying that's not then. Um... Uh, well, at this point, I think we think that it's purely sensory. Well, as long as we think it's purely uh, Opinions matter, right? So let's, let's punt this off to the opinions of our subscribers, that if you have a peripheral neuropathy that's purely sensory that you'd like to know more about or to know is it purely sensory, uh, shoot it to us on any of our social media channels, and we'll make it one of the upcoming podcasts or, or webinars or even a blog. Most of our, our ideas for these topics come from you, so we're grateful for you supplying those topics. We're also grateful for you hitting that like button to tell others about the podcast. That is, so if you like this podcast, please tell others. Hit the like button. Leave a review. We'll be super grateful. Yeah, that's true. In fact, our next blog, our next blog, next, next podcast is a pure um, listener suggestion. I think you put out a I think it was you put out a blog about the top research articles of 2023. We're going to go into discussion about that in the next podcast. Oh, and there's some hot topics there. Uh, we'll find out. Um, here's the deal with Dr. Burlesman. You can believe about 50% of what he says. So we're going to have to probably limit. Would you, you do 10? 10%? I dropped that No, quick. do you do 10, ar 10 articles? 10 articles, So yes. we'll probably do five. <laughs> Which five are the most believable? <laughs> it's even numbers. Um, so let's dive into um, how to find these things uh, as far as dorsal scapular neuropathy. And this is one of the 
the issues with neuropathies is that it is a continuum is that as this nerve becomes more swollen, more dysfunctional, more compressed, more stretched, whatever it may be, that it loses its ability to function. So check out the, um, the rhomboid uh, strength test within Cairo up. You can do this two ways. You can do it laying down and you can also do it seated. Um, but if they have weakness, with the ability to posteriorly tilt your scapular, or essentially bring your scapula down into your back pocket or bring it towards your spine, that's a problem. We need to go looking for something that could be causing this, in this case, dorsal scapular neuropathy. Excellent. And don't forget that a lot of times these patients are going to complain of nighttime pain, that neuropathies kind of have a double-edged sword, that at nighttime you're not really using the muscles and tissues that provoke the nerve, but you're also not pumping a whole lot of blood and there's not much else to focus on. So a lot of times those neuropathies become more, more bothersome at night with the sensory symptoms. Um, and that's certainly true of dorsal scapular neuropathy especially if that patient is sleeping in a position of maximum foraminal compression. So when somebody comes in with these symptoms, what are we going to do? Well, we know that focusing on the origin, just like for sciatica, we look at the lumbar spine. For main syndrome, we look at the thoracolumbar junction. And for dorsal scapular neuropathy, we look at that C5 segment, which seems to be involved in most of the things that we treat related to the neck and shoulders. So spinal manipulation, exercises, soft tissue therapies, um, and also making sure that we, and there's plenty of data to say that that works. There's also data to say that, that if we make sure that we do some nerve flossing of this, and nerve flossing for that dorsal scapular nerve is really simple, and it's certainly not a problem for patients, even if it's coming from their spine, and the way that it works is just have that patient reach out toward their side as though they're making a T with one arm, and then bring that arm across their body as they look towards the side where their arm used to be. So you're kind of scissoring your head and neck, and then just taking your arm horizontal abduction and adduction across your body, and head in rotation right to left, uh, and, and moving your arm and head together and then moving them apart as you're going back and forth. That helps to get a little bit mobility and the nerve flossing exercises for neuropathy seems to be one of the things that's really come onto the scene and has a lot of support. And this is one of those that, that does have some support and makes a difference. If you're having trouble following that um, explanation of the exercise, guess what? So are your patients. You know how difficult it is to show someone how to do a nerve floss? It really isn't that hard. However, if you show them once and they expect to go home and do that exercise, it's very difficult. So make sure you have some videos for your patients, some handouts for your patients. It just essentially resources for your patients to make sure that they're able to help themselves get out of pain. Uh, I do have a no research alert, which is, I guess, not a new research alert. But before we dive into that, uh, a word from our sponsors. Can't get enough of the information you hear on our podcast? You will absolutely love our platform. Cairo Up helps thousands of chiropractors across the globe simplify the way they practice using our online evidence-based software. It's your one-stop shop for powerful clinical research, simplified patient education, and smart practice resources. Visit chiroup.com, try it out for free. And if you'd like to subscribe, use referral code podcast15 for 15% percent off 12 monthly billing cycles. No contract required. Offer valid on new subscriptions only. All right, uh, back from the sponsor, a uh, little insert there. Um, I, I really think what those guys are doing at Cairo is just top notch. I don't know who runs that place, but it seems like an amazing place to get things done. Yeah, I second that. <laughs> uh, no, uh, when it goes into the treatment for um, uh, any kind of dorsal scapular neuropathy, 
I love directional preference. Now, I am not a McKenzie certified practitioner, although I do uh, look for directional preference on a, a every single patient basis. Uh, we use cervical retractions in our practice more than any other exercise. And as it turns out, in the Chiropt Network, it is the most popular exercise. This cervical retraction, uh, we can start with them supine, then going into seated, and then going into seated with overpressure. It is a phenomenal exercise to do something very important for this diagnosis. It opens up the intervertebral foramen, it improves posture, it activates the longus coli and capitis, it stretches the upper trapezius, the levator scapula, all those muscles that we just heard about that are directly related to uh, this diagnosis. Um, if you don't know how to uh, incorporate these things in your practice, check out the, the rehab protocol in Cairo for all the at-home exercises. Now, we're done. Uh, dorsal scapular neuropathy is a very common diagnosis that your patient's going to tell you when they're sitting across from you in your initial consult they have. It's that pain that's in the shoulder blade they can't get to go away. Their husband's rubbing on it. Every single chance they're uh, putting their back up against the, the door frame trying to rub it out, it never goes away. It's because the problem is not there. Now, let's cover a diagnosis where the problem is there. And that's when you have a thoracic spine problem or, in this case, a costal vertebral dysfunction. Now, my diagnosis is usually when it comes to a localized MSK issue in the thoracic spine uh, is thoracic spine segmental joint dysfunction or thoracic spine sprain strain or costal vertebral dysfunction. However, the patient says, my rib is out. My rib has slipped out again. And then it slipped out again. And then it slipped out again. And then it slipped out again. Um, so whenever you hear that in your practice, it's time to start thinking about the thoracic spine and costal vertebral joints. Now, these joints are made for stability. Your thorax is stable. Um, and we don't normally see too much pain in very stable joints, but it can be. Now, one of the, uh, the things about the thoracic spine is that since it is so stable, that means it does start to transfer forces above and below it. And that's why we see so many problems at the thoracolumbar junction just below and at the lower cervical spine uh, just above. So when we, we find most of our pain syndromes, it's at those transitional zones. It's no secret why most of our thoracic spine, I'm sorry, uh, cervical spine disc lesions are at C5, C6. It's no question why we have all of our problems at L5 and L4. It's because you go from an area of very uh, good stability, the pelvis, to hyper or to, to mobility, which is lumbar spine. Or you go from a very stable thorax to a very hypermobile uh, cervical spine. Something has to pay the price, and that's usually where we have our pain, dysfunction, and issues. Yeah, so what do we know about ribs and, and their role? We know that oftentimes there are chronic underlying issues that are perpetuating this. Sure, somebody could have an acute joint restriction or they could have a strain, but a lot of times it's something that they've been, been doing. So the first thing that we wanna do is to stop aggravating it. Now, initially, if it's a hot rib and it's really acute, we wanna have that patient stop moving their arm, that if they take their arm away from their side and start pushing and pulling, a lot of times that's when things are triggered. So we will have them decrease that torque. Anytime that you use the arm, that has to be attached to something, which is the scapula, which has to be anchored to something, which is the rib heads and the rib and the spine. So having that patient limit pushing and pulling if it's acute. Also looking at those chronic perpetuators, like if someone's wearing a bra that cuts right through that area, that's creating a shearing effect and sometimes switching to a sports bra might be a better option. Same thing with workstations that were bent over a 
workstation, whether that be a computer, a couch, or a phone, and we've got our head and shoulders forward, we're perpetuating a posture that takes our back as though it was a piece of plexiglass and now we're bending it over a beach ball. Of course, something's gonna start to cause trouble and irritation. Initially, we might use those anti-inflammatory things and things that help to reduce the, the stress to the area, but really we wanna progress this patient into restoring joint mobility and most importantly, eliminating those postural faults, which is most of the time upper cross syndrome, teaching that patient how to strengthen the muscles in between their shoulder blades, teaching them how to strengthen the deep neck flexors, and how to keep their chest loose because our lives promote that upper cross syndrome posture all day long. Unless we're actively doing something to offset that, there's little chance this will ever respond. Treatment is extremely important, and you can find a lot of research on the treatment for costal vertebral dysfunction, but I, I do believe what you just said is probably the most important is that people cause their own problems. And if their workstation is causing their problem, it doesn't matter how good of a manipulator you are, manual therapist, it doesn't matter how good of whatever technique that you learned in school is the best or what kind of tool you have in your office, it doesn't matter that you have to fix the problem. People cause their own issues, so we need to get to the bottom of it first. Now, once we know what's causing the problem and we stop it, then there is absolutely um, uh, validity in performing those kinds of treatments. Most importantly, what should we be doing? Manipulation, um, rapid recovery. There is not a research article out there that when you have a cost for, well, I shouldn't say cost of vertebral, if you have any joint dysfunction, there is a safe, non-surgical, non-pharmacological option that is there that should be used in its manipulation, uh, that we should assess for restrictions in the ribs and spinal regions. There's a lot of people who uh, adjust for specificity, um, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's research back and forth on are we really adjusting one segment or multiple segments. This is going to be a Brandon opinion. I don't think it matters. Now, I do think the assessment matters. I do think that those people who get in there and find specific joint restrictions and a limitation in range of motion or what have you, that finding it is the hardest part. Fixing it is much easier. So those practitioners who truly go in there and find joint play and joint restrictions and lack of mobility in joints, those are the ones that are taking the time to assess for a problem, a, a dysfunction in the spine, and then manipulation is a great way to fix it. Now, that was the third Brandon opinion of one pie. That's the legal limit, uh, according to the uh, U.S. guidelines. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a, a quote about that, but it's uh, not yeah, appropriate. We probably save that, too. Uh, so paying attention to the details that yes, we want to get mobility into the joint. If we put mobility in the joint multiple times, there's probably something else. The joint could be hypermobile too. So joint dysfunction sometimes needs stability. The other thing is that sometimes there are bad things, although they're pretty unusual. Having somebody who has an unresponsive condition might suggest there's something else going on. A lot of times there's referral from the cervical spine. We talked about dorsal scapular neuropathy, but we also want to rule out the really threatening stuff because metastasis to the spine is a common presentation. Viscerosomatic referral is a common presentation. So we want to be aware of those, which may be contraindications to manipulation. So if something's lingering on, take a little deeper look. We shouldn't have to adjust the intrascapillary more than three or four times if there's not something else perpetuating it. So uh, getting towards the end of the podcast, we have dorsal scapular neuropathy, and we also have costovertebral joint dysfunction. Do you say costo or cost, costo? 
Costo. I think I see that too. I said it and they sounded a little bit odd. Anyway, um, there's a ton of other musculoskeletal diagnoses that can be responsible for thoracic spine symptoms. You've got your main, you've got thoracic spine sprain strains, intercostal neuritis, you've got intercostal strains, you've got fractures, pathology, uh, infections, and don't forget the one that will get us shingles. Now, shingles uh, can happen uh, that will uh, sometimes fool you for a little bit until you take a look at the skin. Yeah, especially if it's that pre-eruption state. And a lot of times, once it starts to erupt, patients will say the same thing. I burnt myself with a hot pack. They were having some discomfort. They put an electric hot pack or whatever hot pack on there, and they have this little burn that looks like two or three blisters. That's probably not a burn. Yeah. <laughs> take home point. Don't just keep adjusting the spine. That doesn't mean don't adjust spine. That's that's what that's what saves me time and makes me money. Uh, manipulation of the spine uh, is the safest uh, non-pharmacological, non-surgical option we have for MSK care. Keep on doing that. However, if you're not getting your expected response for whatever diagnosis may be, check your diagnosis again. Look at the differential diagnosis. What else could be living in that area that is preventing you from getting your patient uh, the expected result? All right, wrapping up what's new with Cairo Up. Well, first of all, uh, both of us will be speaking at one of our profession's premier events, and that's the Parker Vegas Seminar. February 21st and 24th, I'll be speaking on shoulder dysfunction. You'll be speaking on something or other. Um, uh, it's actually going to be a new talk. A new talk. It, wow. The, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. The dizzy patient. Let's be honest. I mean, let's be, let's be. Are there free samples? <laughs> yeah. It, there is nothing. I mean, this is, well, you know what? Fourth opinion. There's nothing scarier, at least to me, and I'm 15 years in, than a patient that has neck pain, headaches, and dizziness, right? Like that's, that's could be a home run case or it could be, it could go a different way. Uh, so within one hour, we're going to cover how to become the expert in that patient and how to triage that person. And this is going to be a, the number. <laughs> you ready for this? This this is this is unscripted. Um, oh, oh my! Is that chiropractors can actually? <laughs> I shouldn't even say this online. Uh, is because I'm, I'm going to kind of. If you're going to Parker, you're going to, you're going to enjoy this. However, I do believe chiropractors can treat the number one variable in strokes. The number one, meaning we can be the person most responsible for treating strokes. And I'll go over the answer, Parker. Aren't aren't you a little bit curious on that? Um, I I am. I I think probably your malpractice carrier is curious too. No. Well, I think they would enjoy this talk because I think it's going to be something that's going to be valuable for the profession. Something that I learned that I've never really thought about it so much, that we are a key person in the healthcare arena that is very responsible for recognizing these things. Yeah, I, I trust it will be something uh, eye-opening, and I'm looking forward to actually seeing it myself. I will have a couple of questions during the presentation, too, if that's okay. <laughs> the other uh, the, and last and final thing is that l- earlier this month, we released that chief complaint survey. We're getting some great feedback. We've got a few quotes here, but when, since we're running short on time, I'll leave those out, and I'll let uh, invite everyone to make their own quote that if you haven't checked out the chief complaint survey that we released last month, make sure that you give it a whirl. uh, And also uh, then let that spark your imagination as to what our profession could do if some company came up with a uh, whole tool like an EHR that could produce those same sort of results. So if you haven't checked it out, check it out. And also thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, I would encourage you to hit that follow button so you don't miss any future episodes like next month where we'll talk 
about research. Uh, by following, you'll be the first to know when we release new content, and you'll have access to our entire library. We appreciate you as peers, as followers, and as people who are moving our profession forward with the same goal, to make our profession the undeniable best choice for patients and payers alike. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening. To access more information, visit ChiroUp.com. You can sign up for a 14-day trial. Use referral code PODCAST15 for a special discount after your trial. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.